How many, how many uh, this morning, how many of us this morning have taken a passing interest in uh, what's going on with Harry and Meghan? Anybody? Anybody willing to put their hand? Well, I have. I must have been, I've taken a bit of a passing interest. Um, but I'm not a royalist. Let me tell you, I'm not a royalist. If anything, guess what? I'd be a Republican. Surprise, surprise. Um, but what I found interesting, other than the constant uh, airing of people's dirty laundry and people seeking five minutes of fame, is that the way they have been reported, you'd think that Harry and Meghan have almost single-handedly ripped the heart out of the royal family. Again, I don't think that's the case either. Oh, I even heard one English commentator report um, that they have caused a revolution in the royal family. Well, I for one certainly don't think, I think, sorry, I do think that that is a real stretch of what's going on. Um, with a re- revolution, we know that the current rulers are overthrown and in ages past, they are either executed or banished um, and those leading the revolution take over. It's funny though, it's funny with revolutions. History shows that those that overthrow and lead the revolution often end up just as bad as those they overthrew. Well, with Jesus, I can comfortably say that he started a revolution, but a very different revolution from any that we have seen. And certainly very different from those that were bubbling along under the surface in Israel at the time. In Jesus' revolution, he had to do two things. Firstly, he had to show the Jewish people that his movement really was the fulfilment of all that Israel had believed and longed for. And the second was to show that he and his followers were living out this new way of being God's people. These two requirements seem to always be in conflict with each other. There were some, even today, that think that whilst Jesus was a great teacher, he was no revolutionary. Whilst others think that Jesus completely ditched the Jewish people and started something completely new. Our reading this morning shows us Jesus held these two dilemmas together. Yes, he offered something completely different, something revolutionary, to which he would remain totally loyal and faithful because it was, in reality, what all of Israel's traditions and life had pointed to. As we heard last week, uh, in, the intro- in, in the introduction to what is, sorry, as we heard last week, this is the introduction, in the introduction to the Sermon of the Mount. Sermon, oh my goodness, Roy, can we edit that? Let me try that again. As we heard last week in the, introdu- in the introduction to what is referred to as the Sermon in the, on the Mount, Jesus said he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Most of the rest of the sermon explains exactly what that means, ending in chapter 7 in Matthew. So our passage this morning is a type of gateway to what is going to follow in the next two chapters. But the theme is clear. 
Jesus is calling Israel to be Israel. Also, what he is saying can also easily be applied to Christians today. But the real challenge was to Jesus' own contemporaries. God had called the people of Israel to be salt, but they were behaving like everybody else. Israel was riddled with politics and factionism and military revolutions. They were hardly a unified people. One thing we know about salt is that you can always taste salt. Like I said to the kids, you can always taste that, that sort of one grain, one, like one grain still fizzes, sort of gives this fizzy sort of feeling on your tongue. It's a distinctive taste, isn't it? Well, Israel had lost its taste. There was nothing distinctive about them. They were just as bad as all the nations around them. They no longer tasted difference. The main function of salt in the ancient world was to stop things from going bad. That was Israel's function in the world. In the, in the same way, they were called to be light of the world. They were to light, not only just shine on evil but to, and to show it up for what it was, but also to help those who were trapped in the darkness, to help them find a way. So what if the light bearers had turned off their lights? What if they had become part of the darkness? It's interesting, Dean, our eldest son, lives up in ben, the one who lives up in Bairnsdale, um, was telling us just how hard it was to drive home at night. Um, it been at a school function, driving home uh, along the roads in Bairnsdale at, at near his, his property, and you see all the markers the roadside markers, had been burnt down. All the cat's eyes in the middle of the road had melted. So even though he had his headlights on, he couldn't see exactly where the road went. That was what Jesus' warning was like to the people of Israel. They had lost their ability to show the way, the way of God. Jerusalem, a city on a hill, was to be a beacon of hope to the world. And by following God's laws, they would be assigned to the nations around that the one God, the creator of the universe, the God of Israel, was indeed God. And that they should also come and worship him. You can imagine that despite the people longing for the Messiah, when Jesus comes along, teaching a new way. You can, you can imagine them saying, oh, here comes another one. You know, here comes another guy who thinks he's got all the answers. Well, Jesus answered that. The scribes and the Pharisees did in fact teach the way of being faithful to God, a way of behaving in accordance with God's covenant. But God's sovereign rule was breaking in. The kingdom of heaven for those that wanted to be a part of it, there needs to be a change in covenant behaviour that goes far, far beyond anything the scribes and the Pharisees had even dreamt of. Jesus makes it very clear. He hasn't come 
to abolish the laws and the prophets. In Jesus, the whole story of Israel, commands, promises and all, were going to come true in him. And he is there, right in front of them. A way was opening up for Israel. And through that, all the world. To make God's covenant a reality in their own selves. Change behaviours. Change of heart. Change of mind. Not just a new teaching. You want a revolution? And this was a revolution. Unheard of. Unheard of before. It was something completely new. And yet, it was the same. It was so deeply entrenched in the ancient stories and promises of the Old Testament. And it is those stories and promises that Jesus had brought into reality in his own person. Jesus certainly was salt. Even today, the story of Jesus tastes different to what's being offered out there. Jesus certainly was light. Perhaps a light too bright for today, for some. Shining on light on those shortcomings, insecurities, failures, their needs. Perhaps this light is shining on things they don't want to deal with. Jesus, the light of the world set on a hilltop, crucified for all the world to see, becomes a beacon of hope, of new life for everybody, drawing people to worship his Father, embodying the way of self-giving love, which is the deepest fulfilment of the law and the prophets. Sometimes I think the taste of Jesus is so foreign a taste to people that they can't accept it. To me it would seem that People are looking for something far more complex taste or maybe something far sweeter in taste that they can enjoy, that makes them feel good. I read somewhere that the benefit of salt is that when you add it to foods, it brings out the true flavour of the food. So I suppose initially people don't like the thought of Jesus bringing out their true person. But we all know, we all know, don't we? If you keep adding salt, eventually the salt will take over and you will all taste like salt. That's why these sayings that originally applied to the people of Israel now apply to everybody that follows Jesus. And that leads, it leads me to these questions. I mean, we have to answer these questions ourselves. How does this challenge to be salt and light affect us today? Where does, where does the world need salt and light right now? But more importantly, how can we, by following Jesus, provide it? Amen.